there's something outside. What is that? joining us. We have a great show tonight. Uh, first of all, let me bring Thomas in. Thomas, how are you? Oh, doing pretty well, considering uh, my country has been turned into a police state. <laughs> yeah, I've been watching that, and um, Jesus, it's like the whole world's absolutely lost its mind, it seems, lately. No, Jeez. just the left. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I, I totally understand. Um, mm. Yeah, it's it's been interesting. I, I'm just way over this whole COVID thing and, and ready for it to be in the rearview mirror, as I'm sure a lot of people are, especially where you're at. So, absolutely. But yeah, listen, we we really have a great show tonight. Um, the guest that we are having has never been on the show before. And his name is Larry Beans Baxter. Uh, some of you, of you may be familiar with him. And for those of you who aren't, let me just tell you a little bit about Larry. Um, he does have a, a, he's a book author, and he wrote a book called Abandoned, The History and Horror of Port Chatham, Alaska. That's available through Amazon. That was written back in 2021. Uh, he also is a consultant to TV shows and documentaries about Bigfoot and cryptids, such as Finding Beasts, In Search of the Port Chatham Hairy Man, The Alaska Triangle, Bigfoot Encounters in the Pacific Northwest, and Aliens in Alaska. So very interesting um, contributor to all of that. And he also has a, a podcast called Alaskwatch Podcast. So he's a very, very busy person, it sounds like, and uh, we really appreciate you coming on, Larry. Welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Great, great, great. I'll tell you, the, um, you know, we'll talk about the, the Chatham situation later. Before the show, we were talking about the TV show on right now and how different that is uh, about the Fort Chatham incident compared to, you know, your information and investigation of it. So we'll get into that in a little bit here. But first, Larry, you are living in Homer, Alaska still. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. Good. I, you know, I've never been to Alaska, but I tell you what, it's 
beautiful up there, I'm sure. I'm jealous. <laughs> yeah, everybody should try um, and go at least once. Yeah, I would think so. I, I'd love try, it up there, try. and I, I'd love to go. <laughs> What's that, Tom? I said try going during the summer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'd probably have to do that. Um, but, yeah, let's. Tell us a little bit, Larry, about how you even became interested in the whole enigma of Sasquatch and the cryptozoology arena. How did you get started? Well, it's been a lifelong, uh, I don't want to say obsession, but my wife certainly would. Uh, It's just (laughs) been something I've always been interested in. I I grew up uh, across the street from a library. Uh, I grew up in Kentucky. Uh, which has its own share of uh, spooky stories and cryptid stories. And, you know, I just grew up, and that was my favorite section of the library was the book on, you know, Bigfoot, Loch Ness Monsters, you know, the Crestwood Monster series, stuff like that. And I just grew up just reading those books over and over again. And, you know, as I got older, my interest in it would kind of come and go and, I would read magazines like 40 and times, stuff like that. And I just always had an interest in it. And then, you know, coming up to Alaska and falling in love with Alaska and living here, you know, the military, I I joined the army. I said, I don't care where the army sends me as long as it's nowhere cold. And they sent me straight to Alaska. (laughs) And And that's the way it is. And living here. Yeah. And living here, you know, I really, um, I kind of got back into the Bigfoot thing because, uh, if you think about Bigfoot or cryptids in Alaska, you know, Bigfoot's one of the, the prominent ones other than probably the only on the lake monster. And it's it's really an interesting subject up here because there's not a lot of reports. If you go and look at Alaska on a lot of the Bigfoot reporting websites, you don't see a lot coming out of here. But if you get up here and you get on the ground and you start talking to people, you find that either everybody, they either have their own story or they know somebody that has a story. And uh, it's a little bit more prevalent up here than you would think just looking at the Internet. Mm, wow. Now, there, there's a lot of um, uh, legends and stories of the, the First Nation people have talked about uh, up there. And, um, you know, one of them is, is going to be what we're going to get into here in a little bit about what what some claim happened at the at Port Chatham. But so you you were in the military in Alaska and, and you got out and then you became uh, law enforcement and you served at the St. Paul Police Department on the island of or island of St. Paul in the Bering Sea. How interesting is that? And then you transferred to the Homer Police Department on the is that Kenai Peninsula? Kenai, yeah. Kenai Peninsula, my bad. And, uh, so, yeah. yeah. So I, 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 go ahead. I spent the last 20 years in uh, military and law enforcement. I just recently retired uh, from the Homer Police Department. I was the um, investigation sergeant there when I left, which meant I was in charge of uh, – I either investigated or supervised the investigation of all the major crimes, any uh, – felony level crimes, uh, you know, sexual assaults, murders, anything like that. And um, I really take, I like to take a lot of those skills that I learned um, in that position. I was very fortunate that my department was very liberal with training. They would always let us 
if the budget allowed for it, they'd let everybody pick a, a class that they wanted to go to out of state every year and, and send us to some training. So I always tried to pick something that would help me with my professional career, but also maybe could maybe sort of transfer over to my search for Bigfoot when I left law enforcement. And uh, I got a lot of good training in uh, forensics and uh, investigations, and it really I'm actually writing another book right now about how I, some of those skills transfer over from uh, the criminal investigation side to the cryptid investigation side of things. Wow. You know, that's interesting because it, it, you could definitely um, bring the different level into um, cryptozoology research when you have your kind of background. Um, Thomas, did yeah. you have any questions so far? So certainly do. Uh, well, Larry, it's great to talk to you finally. Yeah, and same I, here. Same. Yeah, I just want to say uh, I've ordered your book, but apparently the the system you have doesn't deliver it to anywhere outside the United States. <laughs> I tell you what, uh, when we get done, if um, they haven't got it to you or they're not getting it to you in a timely manner, let me know, and I'll see uh, what I can do to get it to you myself. I, I've got a few copies here that I can uh, that I can find out. I appreciate out, but, um, Yeah. Great. Yeah, I appreciate that. That was a little surprising. Yeah, you can go down anywhere in the United States, but Canada's a foreign country, so they won't they won't send it here. <laughs> uh, now, the name of the actual village in question was called Portlock. Correct. That's right. That's right. It was uh, founded in the early 1900s, mm-hmm. and uh, it was it was a fishing village. But uh, what a lot of people don't realize is that the main economic force in the village wasn't actually fishing; it was the sawmill. Uh, a sawmill, sawmill and would, a right? Right. The sawmill would make the wood. They would cut the wood that they would use for the fish traps to catch the fish. Mm-hmm. And no. so the sawmill was probably, I think the the uh, the cannery was the biggest uh, employer, but the sawmill was they couldn't have the cannery there without the sawmill to make the fish trap. Okay, now uh, they uh, it opened up a post office there in 1921, I believe. Uh, yes, it was sometime around the 1920s, I believe. The post office opened up. Okay. Uh, it was a full-time village. Uh, it w- there wasn't just people there just in the summertime or during the fishing season. There were people that lived there year-round. Uh, what, what, what was the population, roughly? Uh, the year-round population was a, a little over 100. Um, and then, of course, it, wow. it would swell uh, during the fishing season. It would balloon up uh, probably into the, you know, two or 300. Uh, usually the cannery would provide barracks and uh Place, a place to live for the workers, and even like a little company store. Uh, they would give. It was a lot like the coal mines back in back home in the south, where they would have a company store, and they would give you coins. They would give you money that was only good at the company store. I've seen pictures of the little coins they would hand out to say like Portlock uh, Cannery, good at the company store. You know, good for like five cents in trade. Uh, and it was very much like the, the coal mines back in the south, how the, the company basically owned the town and how the, the town revolved around the industry there. Okay. Now, the cannery was operating the sawmill. 
I first heard about Portlock when my late friend John Green wrote a small bit about it in his book, The Apes Among Us, page 335 and 336, but it didn't go into detail. When was it that something strange started happening, was being noticed around Portlock? About what time period? So the the strange goings on, they really, they started, I'm not sure what initially when they started, but they started, I guess, being talked about, or they started making their way outside of the village in the 30s. Okay. That's, yeah. That's when you started, to, and keep in mind, you know, a lot of people don't realize a lot of this stuff was going on way before Bigfoot was even, even before the word Bigfoot was even invented or thought of back mm-hmm. in the War 48. This was, this was all going on in the 30s and 40s up here. Mm-hmm. And there was uh, a, at least, um, it's, it's hard to put a number on it because this all happened, one, it happened prior to statehood. Too, as everybody knows, the village was eventually abandoned and, and left behind, and a lot of the records from there, it, it's hard to track them down. Uh, so of course, yeah. there's a lot of there's a lot of factors that goes into this uh, when you go into the research this place because a lot of the records you just can't find them. Um, when oh, I was absolutely. writing my book, you know, when I was writing the book, I got uh, to talking to a lady from the state records department, and she was. Very, she was so willing to help me. She's like, because I wanted to find Andrew Kamluck. I wanted to find his death certificate. Uh, Andrew Kamluck was the man. I believe uh, he was found dead in the 1930s, and he had been out uh, working cutting lumber by himself. And they found him, and they said that his head had been he died from blunt force trauma to the head from a piece of machinery that was too heavy for a man to lift. It had been. It had fallen on him or had been thrown at him, and they attributed that to the Mantanoc or their version of the Bigfoot. And yeah, right. I wanted to find his his death certificate because I thought if I can get his death certificate and it collaborates that he died from blood force trauma of the head, it doesn't prove that Bigfoot killed him, but it helps to shore up the story. Mm-hmm. And um, so me and this nice lady from the state records office, which is in Juneau, which is actually pretty far away from me, uh, I was uh, – communicating with her via telephone and uh, email. And she was helping me look for Mr. Camluck's death certificate. And after a couple of weeks of searching, she finally comes to me and she's just like, I cannot find it. I don't know where it would be. She goes, and this is pretty funny. She goes, maybe you should check with the Homer police department. <laughs> and uh, I was like, no, ma'am, I'm, I'm, I can tell you, I'm pretty sure they don't have it. She didn't know that I worked there at the time, but it was just pretty, it was pretty humorous. <laughs> Now, before this gentleman was killed with the, possibly with a heavy piece of equipment, wasn't one of the first instance three hunters from the uh, cannery who went out hunting and disappeared, and only the body of the dismembered and mutilated body of one of them was found in, a, in one of the high little bodies of water up there, and the other two were never found other than a broken bow and arrow hanging from a tree? Now, I, those stories are a little bit harder to uh, collaborate. Now, Kim Luck's family that tell basically the manner of his death. Uh, but the missing hunters, they're a little bit harder to track down because you don't have Absolutely, any. Absolutely, yes. You never have any. You never have any. Were any of these three men yeah. ever identified? Yeah, you never have any names. You never have any. Uh, you just get like vague locations. And I do have some information about a missing uh, gold miner. I, I'm pretty confident that that gold miner really did go missing. 
but mm-hmm. as far as the hunters, I haven't been able to verify anything officially with any kind of official documents or records. Um, that doesn't that doesn't necessarily mean it didn't happen. I just can't verify it officially. Uh, I think for the place to yeah. get yeah, I, I yeah. think for the place to have the the uh, reputation that it does, I do think some things went down there. I do think some people were missing there, but. You know, proving it and and knowing it are two different things. Right. Yeah. Now, what year was it that the cannery closed down? So the cannery, it actually, there's there's a story that says that um, in the 1920s, the workers basically went on strike, said we're not going to work anymore because of this Nantanox that keeps bothering us. And the the company basically caved to their demands and hired like a private security company like the Pinkertons to basically guard the town and all the workers came back to work. Mm-hmm. And then you, there's uh, again in the, 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 was it the 19 late 1930s, I believe is where I heard that the sawmill burned down. And remember earlier I was saying the sawmill was kind of the driving force behind the fish traps. And that, I think, in my opinion, I think the sawmill burning down is what led to the closure of the, of the uh, cannery. I don't think it was necessarily oh, the, It was the other way around. I think yeah. the cannery down first and then the sawmill burned down. Well, I believe the sawmill, the sawmill caught on fire. It was caused by uh, a, um, a spark from a blacksmith's forge. And mm-hmm. I believe it just kind of caught the entire. It was kind of like a, it caught the entire town on fire, basically, and burned the the sawmill and the yeah. cannery down. And I think that's that's what led to the ec- the economic death of the town was the the fire. So with the sawmill and the cannery gone, the two main employers in the area, would you say in that European that was more the result of the uh, abandonment of Portlock rather than this uh, mist then. Uh, Tindog killing people. Yes, and if I, I have a, I quote the article in my uh, book uh, that uh, Fairbanks Daily Miner published about the sawmill burning down, and they mention in there that neither the sawmill nor the cannery were, they were both owned by the same family. Basically, the same family ran the town, and they say that neither the sawmill or the cannery were uh, insured. And that when those buildings were lost, basically the family gave up and they moved down. They opened up another cannery somewhere down in Washington. And mm. that was that led to the death of the town. I, I don't think it was – it's not quite the horrific image that's displayed in a lot of uh, the retellings of the legend or the uh, stories that you see on TV where people are running away from the town because an Antonov's going to kill everybody. And don't get me wrong, there were some sightings and activity there, and we actually experienced some stuff when we went there. But it's not quite the the horror story that everybody everybody makes it out to be. Yeah, yeah, it's still tragic enough. And believe me, if you got two, even one or two or three instances of a an unknown primate harming people, that's something to consider. <laughs> but. Uh, yeah. Well, my point is, like now, now most of the abandoned buildings didn't the result of them. Uh, basically, most of them got taken out by the tsunamis after the '64 quake. Well, I think nature just took took a lot of them back. Um, yeah, there's actually there's actually more than one building than is portrayed. 
there's actually uh, three or four other cabins that are still standing. I, I don't know why in that TV show. I don't know why they claim that cabin was the only one. There's actually more. And if you watch uh, In Search of the Port Chatham Harry Man, you can see some of the other buildings that are still standing. Yes, I enjoyed it. Um, it's amazing how that other show, just like to say it's the only cabin and they're the only ones that have ever been there when you were there just a year or so before. <laughs> Wow. Yeah, I don't, I don't quite understand that. You can you can literally go on the same network and watch the Alaska Triangle and show uh, they show us there in the same place two yeah. two years earlier. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and I, I, I remember I enjoyed seeing on your program you actually found what looked like abandoned Russian heavy equipment. Do you think that was the site of the old sawmill? Uh, I think that was probably the cannery because. It oh, looked like oh. there was a lot of, um, yeah, there were some, like, boilers, and I'm, I'm not a equipment guy, so I can only guess the speculate as to what some of their uses was. But I think that was where the cannery was, was up on that that high area, that cliff where we were at, because mm-hmm. some of the pictures I've seen from back when the place was, um, was operating, uh, they had a large uh, ramp that, that led down into the water where they would uh, – load the fish onto and it would carry it up there to that area where I believe that's where the cannery was. I'm not sure where the sawmill was. Okay. Now, other than the man who was apparently killed by a piece of heavy equipment that was lying on the ground, were any of the other missing or so-called victims of this thing ever identified? Or is it all just stories that we don't know if they're true or not? Uh, Most of them are just stories. I do have uh, some independent confirmation on a gold miner that went missing, although I don't have his name. Um, mm-hmm. He wasn't. He wasn't. There. There was a chrome mine that was active in the area, and it closed down not too long after uh, World War II because the demand for the chrome uh, went away. But mm-hmm. uh, according to according to some of the legends, they say the mine was abandoned because mm-hmm. of the Bigfoot, and that's that's not necessarily true. Most most of that. Area was was uh, abandoned, but due to economic reasons, not uh, not supernatural ones. <clears throat> now the per- the local word for this Sasquatch type being is Nantinog. Am I pronouncing that right? Uh, Nantinok, kind of like a you knock on a door at the end. Nantinok. Okay. Okay, Nantinok. Have you? Do you know uh, Robert Alley by any chance? I do. I've met. I have met Mr. Alley. Uh, love Raincoat Sasquatch. It's probably my favorite uh, Bigfoot book. Mm-hmm. Do you know if? Uh, I beg your pardon. I was just to say uh, I met Mr. Alley at the Medellin Falls Conference last year. Uh, he's a okay, he's cool. an interesting guy. I. I, uh, his, he has a new book out, actually, that's uh, it's very good yeah. as well. He's around the Capitol in Juno, and I think I'm actually closer to Juno than you are. <laughs> Down here on the beach. Probably are, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> that's the way of Juno. The way last is it stretches halfway down around British Columbia. The Capitol is almost down at the south end. <laughs> and yeah. Port Lock. People don't, and Port, how, people don't realize they're in the how southern coast. Is. Yeah, it's a big, big land there. And uh, I had the pleasure of visiting Alaska a couple times going up because when I was in the Army, we'd go up and do winter exercise with our American friends up around Fort Wainwright. So uh spent a lot of freezing nights out there, I'll tell you. 
uh, I've mm-hmm. never been Port Chime and Portlock. I would love to see it myself, but I've never been there. But I always wondered just how much of this, because until you, you and your documentary and now your book, the only thing I ever read about it was what my late friend John Green put in his book, and it was very and it's very uh, you know vague. Yeah, well, I think that's one of the reasons why there hasn't been very much um, out there on the subject is just for the reasons I said earlier, it's so hard to research because, one, it's, you can't track down the records from the town, and, two, you know, this was all before statehood. They didn't have the best record-keeping to begin with. Mm-hmm. And um, it's just unless you can reach out and find people that actually lived in Port Chatham, it's really hard to get any good factual information. And even then – uh, you know, a lot of those people are starting to pass away. I had a gentleman reach out to me uh, who's, I believe it was, I can't remember if it was his mother or grandmother, or no, it was his mother-in-law, who uh, had some stories about working in the cannery at Port Chatham, and she wanted to talk to me. And by the time I was able to, like, get in touch with her, uh, her family, she had passed away. So it, it's we're we're losing that part of history like it's dying off wow. and it's getting it's not it's not getting passed on and that's one of the reasons why I went ahead and wrote the book was because I was afraid if I didn't get as much as I could documented that eventually they're all we're going to have is the legends and the cheesy TV shows and stuff like that so um right. I I'm glad I was able to document what I could when I could now, one of the last uh, places to be abandoned in Portlock, I believe, was the actual post office that opened up in 1921. Was it 1951 when that was closed down and basically Portlock ceased to exist? Yes, 1950 was the last um, the last time that anyone resided there, and that was the postmaster that left. And I believe in 1980, uh, the government sent some census workers into the area just to confirm that nobody lived there and that uh, the area was abandoned. And uh, on one of the cabins, I believe it's the main one that you see on the TV show there, uh, there was some graffiti on it that said like 1980 U.S. Census or something like that. So mm-hmm. uh, they, had sent some, they had sent some census workers in there to basically make oh. sure nobody was, was still there. So that amazes me. That means it almost took 19 years to confirm that there was nobody there. <clears throat> well, that was the that was the census when they, they did the census. So they said, "Well, yeah." Well, you figure after the post, <laughs> yeah. they wouldn't wait 19 years to confirm there was nobody left. <laughs> I don't think the post office and the census bureau probably talk to each other very much. Oh, the government. <laughs> <laughs> one of them probably has no idea what the other one's doing. Yeah, but I, I did read, and John Green did mention in his book that the the remains of the town were quite devastated by tsunamis as a result of the '64 earthquake. Do you know if that's true? Uh, I I can only imagine that it is, uh, just mm-hmm. because of the the magnitude of that earthquake. I mean, we certainly saw a lot of damage here. Uh, in Homer, where I live, and a lot of um, actually terrain features changed. And yeah. I can and only you, imagine home, the same thing happened there. Yeah, your home mm. base of Homer is only a, a couple of hours boat ride from uh, Portlock or Port Chatham? Yeah, from where I sit right now, from where I'm sitting here talking to you right now, Port Chatham is only 40, 40 miles away from me. Okay. Well, I'll be darned. 
Interesting area. Now, does that area have a long history of Sasquatch sightings? It does. Uh, ever since uh, people moved into there, that they told the tales of the, the natives told the tales of the Nantanak. Uh, their version of it, it has a little bit more of a more supernatural lean to it. Uh, they believe it's a shape changer. It can. Um, change shapes. Uh, it always comes out when it's foggy. They'll tell the kids don't go outside when it's foggy or then Antonaka's going to get you. And, and they have a lot of um, a lot of legends around it where they, they just say if you hear wh- whistling, you know, we don't hear, you don't hear a lot about wood knocks up here in Alaska. Up here in Alaska, you hear more about whistling than wood knocks. And uh, they, they say if you hear whistling in the woods, that you should turn around and go the other direction because it's an Antonak and you shouldn't whistle mm-hmm. back. Well, Larry, in my opinion, most wood knockings are people knocking and other people knocking back. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I found that uh, it sounds like the wood knocking is more prevalent in the little 48. I don't know if that's a, something that maybe the, the Sasquatches have adapted a little differently up here because we've got large areas of tundra where there are no trees, so maybe they started whistling instead of knocking. I don't know. I, I, I could tell you, in my opinion, I've been researching this since uh, '78. I think wood knocking is another thing that's basically taken on a life of its own, and in my opinion, it really never should have. Yeah, I've I've only heard knocks in, um, well, good, well-defined knocks in the World 48. I've never heard any here. I've heard what I thought yeah. was maybe some knocks, but I've never. First thing I always say to people, if you're going wood knock, make sure there's nobody else around within a mile, because if there's another camp, especially if it's guys, they hear it, they're going to reply. <laughs> Over height? Yeah. Mm. Yeah, but the so, uh, so you, you've been... Go ahead. I, I want to ask, what, at what time period did the mysterious attacks, alleged attacks, start and did they go all the way on until 1951 or did this stop during the war years when everybody had other priorities after all the Japanese occupied two of Alaska's islands they weren't that far away from what I understand the majority of disappearances and attacks happened in the 30s the 30s and then yeah and then they kind of tapered off toward the war years and then in the, um, I believe it was the late 40s or so is when the, not late 40s, early 40s is when the um, the uh, sawmill burned down. Okay. And that's kind of that's kind of where that's kind of where the dominoes started falling towards the town being abandoned was when the the fire. So uh, these killings and disappearances may have had some influence on it, but mainly it was hit <laughs> from the loss of the sawmill and the cannery, in your opinion, that caused Port Lock to be. Abandoned for greener pastures. Yes. Um, okay. I've heard some people speculate that it was abandoned because that's when the road was finished between Anchorage and uh, and Homer, and that's just ridiculous because there's like three other villages across the bay. There's Seldovia, um, Nanilchik, and Port Graham, and <laughs> if if, if Portlock was abandoned because of the road, wouldn't those other villages be abandoned as well? <laughs> Good thing. That's where I'm at. That's another thing I was going on. Is any of the other villages ever reported similar mysterious disappearances and attacks? So there, Port Graham and um, 
Mimilchik are the closest ones to Port Chatham. And I have had some sightings come out of those. Uh, you know, they say that there's a couple of lakes up uh, by one of the villages there in Port Graham where they believe there's uh, been some sightings and activity. Uh, there's mm-hmm. been sightings of a big gray Sasquatch up there or a white Sasquatch. Mm-hmm. And it seems to, to pretty much leave the village alone. Uh, but the people that go out and go hunting in the, in the woods uh, will occasionally uh, have sightings. Yeah, sightings, mm-hmm. but there have been no incidents in these other places of aggressiveness. No, but it is Alaska. People do go missing all the time up here. So, of course. Uh, yeah, it's like the guy says, there's a lot of things up here that can kill you without even trying. So it's Yeah, that's hard the to uh, British Columbia. I mean, you go in the woods, there's a chance that something may want to eat you. That's just the reality here. Yeah, and that's that's uh, something that I think a lot of people in the World 48 can't have a hard time wrapping their heads around because there's not a lot of large predators in the World 48. Uh, maybe in the Pacific Northwest you have mountain lions and some bear, but uh, mm-hmm. I mean I've had people mauled. There, there was a guy last year that was mauled a couple of miles away from my house uh, by a bear, and um, it just happens here. You know, there's a, there's a yeah. It's just you got to be careful when you go out in the woods. Uh, you never know what's going to happen. Yep. Now you still have a healthy grizzly population up there, which is something the lower people in the lower forty-eight seem to uh, can't grasp either. Yeah. Yeah, I found a couple of years ago we had a six hundred pound black bear that was running around the middle of town, uh, mm-hmm. getting into grease traps mm-hmm. at restaurants and stuff. And I mean, people just had a hard time wrapping their head around it. They're like, "How could this bear be running around in town?" and and we don't know about it. <laughs> <laughs> it happens even where I live here at Mission, British Columbia. We have watch out for bear signs all over town. Yeah, and we have um, we have a large population of uh, bears and moose. Moose are just as dangerous as bears, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. They can be. But yeah. Uh, it's it's hard to just if somebody goes out in the woods and goes missing, it's hard to just say, oh well, it was definitely a Bigfoot or it was definitely a bear or a moose. I mean, people, there's so many dangers up here. It's hard to just say, well, yep, it was definitely this one or that one. Right. But it is interesting that during this period of time in the 1930s, it was, it was so much localized in this little village area, wasn't it? Yeah, and there's a lot of speculation that goes into that. I I personally wonder if it didn't have something to do with the taking of the resources, like the the sawmill cutting down the trees or the fishermen collecting all the fish. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it could be the one thing that kind of spurs these creatures into action is when you threaten their their uh, their food source. Uh, was, the environment. So, was the cannery in Port Lock the only cannery, or did any other villages have one as well? Uh, I believe that was the only one at the time, mm-hmm. and the rest of them were located. I think there might have been one in, in maybe um, the city of Kenai. I know there's one there now. I don't know when that opened up. There's been a lot of uh, there, there's a there's a, a niche 
uh, history of people that are into the history of canneries up in Alaska. It's really fascinating to get into. Mm-hmm. Now, yeah, yeah. Now, before you did your documentary, Larry, do you know of any others that were that may have been forgotten about down by that were done in the Port Lock area about what was going on? No, as far as I know. Now, I know there there are people that have gone there, uh, kind of legend tripping, and you know, uh, locals that will go in there and look around. But as far as I know, our documentary was the the first documented Bigfoot group that went in there and and looked around. I mean, we were the first ones to to go in there. And there might have been other people that went there and looked for Bigfoot before, but we were the first ones that went in there and filmed it and basically uh, made it public. Now, you caught something on your uh, flares at one point, did you not? I did. Uh, I think mm-hmm. it was our last night there, or the day before, or it was the night before our last day there. And um, Mary Beth, uh, who was on the expedition with us, and I were walking through this kind of open area, and uh, she actually just kind of stopped, and she's like, man, do you feel kind of weird, like we're being watched? And I didn't really get any kind of weird vibe or anything, but I pulled out my flare and started flaring the wood line in front of us, and, uh, you know, Curse of Bigfoot, I'm, I'm sure you both have heard uh, the Curse of Bigfoot before where somebody sees something or hears something and they don't quite get it. They don't hit the record button quick enough. Yeah. And um, what I saw what I saw initially was a lot more impressive than what I ended up capturing. Uh, but what I saw with my eyes looking through the FLIR, I can only describe as the character Donkey Kong uh, from mm-hmm. the video game. And it looked like it was sitting there and it was raising its arms up and down, you know, like up over its head, you know, kind of like the YMCA. He was throwing his arms up, doing the Y and up and down like that. Wow. And, uh, and, st- and of course, you know, we're there looking for Bigfoot. We've heard all the stories about the Bigfoot. I see something on my flare that looks like a Bigfoot. And what do I do? I hand the flare to somebody else and go, hey, look over there. What do you see? You know, I didn't hit record. I'm just like, hey, look over there. So I hand the record or the flare to somebody else and, um, it was a younger kid that was there with us. He was the cameraman's brother that was helping carry uh, equipment and whatnot. And he was kind of a younger kid. And I was like, "What do you look over there in that in that tree line? What do you see?" And he he looks through the flare and he goes, "It looks like a dude." <laughs> yeah. Oh, wow. uh, so we we passed the flare back and forth a couple of times. Finally, like we start and as we're doing this, we're kind of walking towards where we see this thing. And uh, I hit the record button finally, and you can definitely see it on the FLIR. It definitely looks like it's kind of a bipedal shape, and it kind of shuffles a little bit. But you can't see it with the definition I initially see it with. Uh, apparently, as we started moving forward, it started retreating uh, away from us. And we never uh, – we didn't do a recreation, which, I mean, I was kind of a baby Bigfooter at this point. I'd done a lot of reading, and I was really interested in the field, but – I hadn't done a lot of on the ground research yet. <clears throat> if I, you know, if I could go back and do it again, I certainly would have done a recreation. Uh, so we could have got a sense of scale. Uh-huh. But uh, I mean, it, it, it was it wasn't another person. Uh, everybody that was there on our crew was accounted for. They were all behind me or with me. 
And uh, it just, I mean, there's no way it could have been another person uh, because we were the only one, there was the only, we were the only boat that was in Fort Chatham Bay. There's no roads or anything in or out of there. Uh, we hadn't heard any air traffic. Uh, I have no explanation for what it was. I, I think it, I think personally, my opinion is I think it was a Bigfoot, but I can't, you know, I can't prove it. Hmm. Well, the, the, that, the Sash um, curse, as you call it, has affected everybody since October 1967. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I used to be pretty critical a couple of, of people, you yeah. know. Yeah. I, I would be like, yeah, sure, you saw it, but you didn't get a picture, you know, what a joke. And now I'm like, okay, right. that's interesting. You definitely caught something. We, 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 I, you, you had it on your program. Yeah. But what you saw, what you, like you said, what you see with the eye is always a lot more impressive than what the camera picks up. Now, did the, uh, how many of these FLIR devices did you have, and were you carrying normal cameras at the same time? So we had, th- I believe there was three FLIRs between our group. Uh, I had mine, Mary Beth had one, and Stephen had one. And then we all had... Uh, our cell phone cameras, uh, you know, I don't even carry a camera in the field anymore. I just carry my cell phone. It takes better pictures than any camera I could probably buy right now. Um, and I took pictures of the area where we got the FLIR video, but it's it's just, I mean, it's just thick foliage. You can't see anything. Um, and the trip yeah. cameras, the camera traps you guys set up, was anything picked up at any of those? No. Uh, I don't okay. even think we got any – we didn't even get any, like, rabbits or moose or anything. Um, if, if we had, we would have probably thrown that into in the documentary. Uh, of course, they were only up for a couple of days. That's what people don't understand. Like, it was really expensive to get out there and to have the boat wait for us. And, you know, because we, we slept on the boat because we didn't have enough people, we felt, to have a secure camp. Um, I would have been all for staying on shore, but – we would have had to keep a 24-hour fire guard, and I, just, I, you know, I we didn't have I can, people. You know. I completely understand because I was on a similar expedition on, on the islands, mm-hmm. island BC in 2016 called Operation Sea Monkey, and anyway, I hated. But <laughs> but we we did the same thing. We had to return to the boat at night because, quite frankly, the, we had a couple of running grizzly bears, and that meant staying on shore mm-hmm. at night was. Definitely out of the question. But, yeah, we can understand that. But you were there, and you got to go ashore during the daylight hours, and that's when you're going to find something is during the daylight hours because uh, you can't see your hand in front of your face at night. Now, maybe the flare could, but you can't. Yeah. <laughs> but in your opinion, Larry, I just said um, – what what is your? You wrote the book, and I'm looking forward to reading it one of these days. If I ever get a copy of it, <laughs> in your opinion, what what happened in Port Wakalasha during the 1930s and 40s? Was it possibly the result of a an aggressive Sasquatch or Nantinok? Nantinok? Or do you feel these people are having a bear problem? Well, I think, um, you know, a lot of people feel like it has to be one way or the other. Uh, mm-hmm. It has to either be 
the town was abandoned due to economic reasons or the town was abandoned because the Bigfoot was killing everybody. Uh, I personally, my opinion is a little bit more in the middle. Uh, I do think, uh, I mean, there is a history of sightings and activity there uh, that goes back, you know, since the moment the town was founded, basically until the town was abandoned. Uh, I do think there's, it's prime habitat habitat for uh, Sasquatches. It shares a lot of environmental and terrain markers with other places with Bigfoot activity. And I think that probably the town died or was abandoned due to economic reasons, uh, the, the sawmill burning down, the owners refusing to rebuild. Uh, but I also think that uh, it's prime Bigfoot habitat, and there probably uh, was some aggressive Bigfoot encounters, especially in the in the Halcyon days while they were stripping all those resources and taking all those fish. I think it was just a, a perfect storm of uh, conditions to uh, basically anger up, uh, you know, the, the Sasquatch or the Nantanok. And uh, I, I can't say... Oh, sorry about that. My dog's just... Uh, <laughs> But uh, I can't, you know, I can't prove uh, that the, the Bigfoot uh, killed anybody there. Uh, certainly, you know, it would, it would uh, help my research if I could find some death, death certificates that said the uh, cause of death from right. Antinoch or something like that. But uh, I think that the, with the reputation that the place has, I think that there's really something to some of the stories and the, and the historical knowledge that they just have of the Antinoch in that area. So uh, I think, yes, the town was abandoned due to economic reasons, but, yes, there was also a long, strong history of Bigfoot activity. Hmm. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. I tell you, I've been fascinated by that story ever since I first read it, and John Green told me about it back when, when he wrote his book in the late 70s. I thought, why have we never heard more about this? Because it was one of the few incidents of a hostile Sasquatch. I mean, we only had a few stories of a hostile Sasquatch in in mm-hmm. in the Ballman story of from Teddy Roosevelt and Portlock, and a couple incidents in Canada where uh, people were said to disappear. I mean, I've always I've always had the state if more often than not, 98% of the time, the Sasquatch does indeed exist. It runs away from you fast and you run away from it. But we do have people who go missing in wilderness areas every year. And I tend to think if there, you did run into a hostile Sasquatch, you would tend to disappear. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's a really interesting account from Port Chatham from the 1920s where a gentleman and his girlfriend were walking uh, along the beach. And they saw the Nantanok or Bigfoot walking along the beach. And the gentleman's passed away, so I can't track him down and ask him why he said it this way. But he said that the Nantanok was carrying a club. And I've always found that fascinating. I've always found that fascinating because why did he say club? Why didn't he say it was carrying a stick or a log or, you know, a piece of wood? He said club. And I've always, always wanted to be able to ask that gentleman, why did he use that word club and not say stick or long? Because that, to me, club indicates that it was, you know, shaped like a baseball bat or it would maybe had some, something done to it that made it more, appear more like a weapon than just a piece of wood. 
Right. Mm-hmm. Wow. Now that's a scary thought. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, and some people may not be familiar with um, your documentary, so I want to make sure they know it's it's called In Search of the Port Chatham Harry Man, and you can actually get that on Amazon Prime. You can purchase it for five ninety nine, or you can rent it. So. Yeah, for those of you who are on YouTube, I believe. Oh, yeah, you can watch you, it on, you can YouTube? Watch on YouTube for free now. Yeah. Oh, okay. I'm like sure. Mm-hmm. And it's a very good documentary, and I do recommend it. Wow. And that was back in 2019. So, do, is there any homes around that area at all, or everybody's gone? Uh, you cut out for a second there, Julie. What'd you say? Oh, I'm sorry. Is there like since all this happened, has has anyone built a, any homes nearby there, or is it like for vacation home or retreat or you know even to live there? Is that no homes have been built in that area either. Not in Port Chatham. There is a cabin across kind of across from Port Channel called in Dogfish Bay that I actually I noticed it was for sale a couple of years ago, but they wanted a lot of money for it. I would have been interested mm-hmm. in purchasing that. But um not in Port Chatham. There's no private residence or cabins. Wow, that's interesting. Hmm. But all that is owned by um the native corporations and the natives own it. And we, we got permission when we went in there in 2019 and, and did our filming. And we actually, we were interested in going back and doing a, a little bit longer and more involved uh, investigation. And uh, we were basically advised, no, we can't go back in there because they were going to be filming their new, their new, sh- the new show. They gave them permission and we were a little late to the game. Uh, that's oh, too bad. Okay. That new show is a joke, as far as I would say. Yeah, yeah. They they actually approached me and asked me if I was interested, and I um, I just I saw some red flags uh, talking to the producers, and I uh, I declined mm-hmm. to participate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Good on you, sir. Good on you. <laughs> yeah, we, we know how think, that goes these lately about all these. Um, shows on TV, they, they really uh, lay it on heavy. Yeah. Well, you know, well, I you got rem- there's a lot. There's... Oh, go ahead, Thomas. Oh, I was just going to say, just remember, Julie, a show that's not just doing a one-time only per, uh, documentary type, in other words, it's serious. Their top priority is getting an audience and to keep going. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Well, I always say there's a lot of parallels between police work and Bigfooting. And a lot of that is there's a long stretch of the time where nothing happens. <laughs> and right. if you just if you if you if you record that and put it out for the average viewer, they're not going to watch it because it's, they they think it's boring. Uh, mm-hmm. That's why you know all these all these shows like Cops and Live PD and all that. That's why they're all edited and stuck together. You know they they don't show you the two or three hours that the guys drive around with nothing going on before they get to go to their call or pull the car over. <laughs> yeah. Indeed. That's true. 
Very interesting. I'm going to have to get your book now. Yeah, your book, uh, Larry, is entitled Abandon, correct? Yes, sir. Yep, and you can order it. You have a web page in which you can order it, as long as you're, you live somewhere in the United States, I might add. America. But for all us outside the, the United States, how the <laughs> hell can we? <laughs> you know, I, I do have an, um, an eBay account. And I think that uh, you might be able to order it through that, and they'll ship it internationally. But uh, I'll, I'll message you, Thomas, uh, after this, and you can get me your address, and I'll make sure you get a copy. Thank you, sir. I appreciate that. I'm a rather and, and you'll probably get an autographed copy. Oh, absolutely. you got to sign it. <laughs> oh, I will. I will. <laughs> I just want to thank uh, Larry for what you've done and uh, to bringing this legend out and get, bring it back into the light. Because, like I said, the only for years and decades, all I knew is with a little bit what John Green had. Nothing else was ever done. And you guys did that documentary, and now you've put out a book. I'm very much looking forward to reading it. I'm glad yeah. someone like you is close by to finally look into some of this stuff, even though, unfortunately, for details, it may be too late. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, like I said, uh, a lot of the history of that place is is probably gone to the grave, and we'll never we'll never be able to get it back. Yeah, yeah, because as I understood, it, as John Green wrote, a lot of the people who left Portlock ended up going to Port Graham and other nearby areas, and they said they wouldn't go back there. Hmm. Yeah, it, it's interesting. Some of the people I've spoken with, uh, they seem to be 50-50 split on it. Some of the natives think it's just, you know, the stories are just stories, and other other ones are like, that place is evil, and I'll never go there. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Yeah. That is interesting. Wow. Okay, Julia, we're getting on uh, top of the hour if uh, you have any yeah, last I'm minute. Yeah, that. Yeah. Well, uh, I tell you, Larry, we really appreciate you coming on. What a fascinating show! And um, wow, I can't believe the hour's up already. I could just sit here and keep going on about this <laughs> for another hour. But uh, so, yeah, are you having any plans of heading back in that direction down the road at all, or just? Uh, you know, I'm never going to say never. Uh, I, I would go back under the right circumstances if I had, but if I had the right, um, the amount of time to spend there, the equipment. I, if we go back, I really want to do it right and just spend a lot of time there with some really good equipment and just really dig in and, and maybe get into some of the areas uh, further away from town. There's a lake up um, above the town that I would love. It's a freshwater lake. I'd love to spend some time up there. I think that's probably the place to be as far as the wildlife goes. Yeah. And if I could if I could get the right the per, obviously the permission's an important thing. The permission to go back in there right. with the um right right amount of people and the right kind of gear, I would probably do it. Wow. And we would definitely you have, follow up on that. Are there any river mouse in the area where the salmon run? Yes. Mm-hmm. In fact, in be, fact huh? where I got where I got that FLIR footage, we were back on the boat looking at the map, and I saw this little uh, stream 
that was coming down from that, that lake. And I said, let's go over there and look around because you're going to have salmon going in there. It's going to go up to, it goes up to that freshwater lake. And that's actually where we had the most activity, not over by the town, but in that uh, area where that little, that little stream flowed down from that river. So, you know, he always follows the creeks, you know. <laughs> right. That is what they say, isn't it? True. In Folk, Arkansas, but uh, not many other places, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, all right. I'll tell you what, great show. And um, Larry, we appreciate it. Thank you for coming on. Thank you for having me. I loved it. Uh, we really Good enjoyed time. talking to you for the first time, Larry, and thank you very much. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Hey, what a good show, huh, Thomas? We definitely uh, would love to excellent. have him back on again. And talk to him excellent about show you know, on an excellent some subject. And, yeah, excellent show and an excellent, and an excellent miss piece of Sasquatch history. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, we'll be back um, next month with another show, and I do have um, a special guest I'm going to be bringing on. Not sure if he's going to be able to come on the next one or the the one after, but I have a professor from the North Carolina University who is very interested in the whole Sasquatch enigma who has um, agreed to come onto the show with us. So that'll be a really That's, interesting time. He's a rarity. I know. It's going to be awesome. <laughs> so well, thank you all for joining us. And uh, we would definitely let you know when the college professor, his name is Darby Orcutt, um, he has to come on. So it'll be another great show. Thanks for joining us.